Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much, John, and thank you for your magnificent contributions to the pedagogical work and the moral leadership work of, of, of the Institute. I want to thank uh, Captain Chris Glass, whom I should also mention is a newer member of our staff, our new senior vice president for professional affiliations, uh, who is deepening our relations with the armed forces, the agencies, the defense contractors, and uh, uh, the, the larger national security community. I'd, I'd like to begin my, by expressing my deep appreciation to everyone who has made the work of the Institute of World Politics possible. Our extraordinary faculty of scholar practitioners who are here with us today, our amazingly dedicated and hardworking staff, our wise, generous, and active board of trustees, our loyal alumni, our wonderful students, their families, their spouses, and so many friends and supporters. For those of you uh, who don't fully know about the mission of IWP, let me briefly explain it. We are dedicated to developing leaders when our nation and the world so sorely needs good ones. They must be people who understand the realities of the world. And that means the nature of foreign cultures and regimes, the behavior of both benign forces and evil ones, and how all these forces interact with one another to produce either harmony or conflict. Of all the schools in our field, we pride ourselves in preparing our students for all of the Machiavellian methods they can expect others to be using to promote their interests and to harm ours. A large part of the understanding of foreign realities uh, involves consciousness of how our perceptions can be distorted by foreign propaganda, disinformation, fake news, covert political influence operations, and strategic deception. Until IWP came along, no school in our field taught these subjects at any level of seriousness. Meanwhile, U.S. government agencies stopped analyzing these distorting influences long ago. And one of IWP's unique contributions has been to keep alive the knowledge of these methods and the ways to counter them. Understanding these foreign realities is not just an intellectual challenge. It is also a moral problem. It involves having the courage to see the truth when so many around you are willfully blind when they look at the world the way they wish it to be rather than the way it is. There's a Russian proverb that our friend David Satter used as the title of his latest book about Russia. The less you know, the better you sleep. George Orwell called this attitude the will to disbelieve the horrible. It is a form of wishful thinking that puts the mind in a state of denial. It was this attitude that inclined innocent German citizens to sit by passively as the Nazi movement grew to such a position of strength that it could not be easily resisted. We saw the same attitude in Russia as Bolshevism grew. We saw it in the West throughout the Cold War 
when people did not want to face up to the realities of, so of Soviet behavior. We saw it again in China with the rise of Mao, in Cuba with the rise of Castro, more recently in Venezuela with the rise of Hugo Chavez. We see it today in Europe as millions of migrants arrive and develop, many of whom are developing separatist enclaves with parallel cultures and no intention of becoming part of that civilization that, uh, that, that puts human rights and the dignity of the individual human person, no matter what their background or condition, as the highest priorities of our society. In our field, wishful thinking takes the form of utop utopianism of which there are many types. And we hope that the education of our graduates, uh, that, uh, that the, the education they've received has inoculated them against indulging in these utopian illusions. There's some people who believe that if we only had a little bit more diplomacy, more treaties, better international law, more international organizations, more mutual understanding that we could all live in peace. Others believe that we can march into a non-Western country and transform it into a democracy overnight as if culture doesn't exist. Others believe that if we just disengage from the world and get out of everybody's face, the rest of the world will cease to resent us or hate us and begin to have harmonious relations with us. And then there are those who think that we can conduct our foreign policy solely according to our vital national interests unencumbered by moral and humanitarian considerations. But such an attitude entertained by the so-called realists is, in my view, a, a form of utopianism of a different type because it assumes that it is possible to disregard the moral and humanitarian impulse in the American heart. A realistic understanding of the world is needed now as much as ever. We are witnessing the radicalization of the Islamic world by forces of terrorist jihadism that are succeeding in recruiting new terrorists faster than we've been able to kill them. We have treated terrorism principally as a military and an intelligence problem, but have systematically neglected the political and ideological problem of radicalization. We have failed to fight the war of ideas and help politically moderate Muslims, our friends, who want their faith to be a religion and not a radical, secular, totalitarian, terroristic ideology. Part of this development is the threat of what the Muslim Brotherhood calls civilizational jihad and resettlement jihad, which involves establishing separatist enclaves and the demands for the acceptance of Sharia law within Western societies. To date, there have been 146 cases in American courts that have been influenced by Sharia law. In New Jersey, a judge acquitted a man for serially raping his wife on grounds that he's a Muslim and he is subject to Sharia law. This is in the United States of America, ladies and gentlemen. Meanwhile, we are witnessing the rise of revanchist Russia which has perfected the methods of hybrid warfare and subversion to attack its neighbors and seize their lands. Then there's the rise of an aggressive and militaristic China whose actions few people choose to notice because 
they're too dangerous and awful to acknowledge. This is a power with the biggest military buildup on the face of the earth. It has up to 50,000 intelligence collectors in the United States today. Its scientists make 5,000 visits a year to our national laboratories, where a visit constitutes a stay of two weeks to two years, and they are sucking up much, much too much of our most sensitive technologies and scientific developments. And then there is their pandemic cyber espionage and intellectual property theft. But you cannot read about most of this in the New York Times or the Washington Post, both of which are money-losing newspapers that have been corrupted by their receipt of millions of dollars from Beijing's propaganda ministry to, so that they can publish a periodic China Watch supplement. Would we have permitted thousands of German graduate students to, the most to, st to study the most advanced sciences in American universities in the late 1930s before the Holocaust actually happened? What China is doing in America today is occurring after that regime's murder of tens of millions of its own citizens and after the Tiananmen Square massacre within recent memory. Today, Beijing runs its equivalent of the Soviet Gulag Archipelago, the Lao Gai, which nobody has heard about, where millions of people today are doing slave labor. Has that regime changed its genetic code? Seeing these unpleasant realities is the first step towards protecting ourselves from them. Another part of our curriculum and our mission involves studying the methods of dealing with all these foreign realities. We at IWP call these the arts of statecraft. These are the instruments of national power. They include traditional diplomacy, the various elements of public diplomacy, which means relations with people and not just governments, and that includes cultural diplomacy, exchanges, information policy, countering foreign propaganda, and international broadcasting. We, it includes the various arts of strategic influence, such as political action, both overt and covert, political warfare, psychological strategy, and ideological warfare. It includes intelligence and counterintelligence, military strategy, cyber statecraft, economic statecraft, homeland security, immigration and naturalization policy, and others. Each of these, as we like to say, is like an instrument in an orchestra. And one has to learn not only how to play one's instrument, but how to integrate it in the larger symphony. Here we on the faculty face one of the biggest pedagogical challenges how to impart an ability to be an integrated strategic thinker, and how to combine one's own specific art of statecraft with the others. Too often our nation fails to use all the available instruments. If diplomacy fails, we try economic sanctions, and when those fail, we either give up or we engage in military interventions. But there are other options. Other ways of conducting nonviolent conflict, if that is necessary. But all too often, the conductors of the orchestra never try them. The more we at IWP succeed in teaching the neglected instruments and their strategic integration, the greater the chance we'll be able to defend the interests of our country and our friends 
without having to kill people to do so. We live at a time of precipitous decline in the study of American history and government, and a simultaneous attack on the legacy of our country, its political system, and our larger Western civilization. This attack has eroded our ability to unite as a people and defend that civilization. The origins of this attack can be found in the moral and cultural relativism that has been spread by the cultural Marxist movement that has pervaded American academia under the guise of multiculturalism. Multiculturalism in practice has not involved the celebration of the contributions of various world cultures either to America or to civilizations around the globe. Instead, it undermines our civilization by focusing on our historical sins while failing to acknowledge our unique achievements. What too many graduates of American colleges fail to understand that is that it is Western civilization that has almost uniquely developed the capacity for self-examination and atonement of our sins. This was the gift of the ancient Hebrews, which was taken up by Christian civilization. In America, it has resulted in the greatest experiment in social, political, and economic self-improvement in world history. The fact is that the American concepts of human rights, rule of law, checks and balances, enumerated powers, limits, limits on governmental power, and respect for the dignity of the human person are not automatic. These things do not inhere in nature. They are extremely rare in human history, and you do not find them in most countries of this on this earth. So we at IWP have as a key part of our mission the task of teaching the political philosophy that underlies this nation's constitutional arrangements. Understanding this political philosophy is a matter of vital national strategic importance. How can one represent, much less defend, a country that one neither understands nor appreciates? In my opinion, one cannot defend a country that one does not love. And the study of the genius of our founding principles breeds precisely the kind of appreciation of the rarity and preciousness of our constitutional arrangements that becomes patriotism. And patriotism, informed and morally ordered, <clears throat> is the heart of our national defense posture. It is central to what Napoleon called the moral factor in war, which he said is three times more powerful than the material factor. The last part of IWP's mission, which may be the most important of all, is to cultivate appreciation of Western Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian moral philosophy and applied ethics. There are three purposes underlying this part of our curriculum and our ethos. First, Western moral philosophy teaches us that human nature is flawed and that no matter how much good human beings can do, they will always be tempted to do the wrong thing. This proposition represents the foundation and the genius of our political system and civilization. We establish a rule of law, diffusion of powers, separation of powers, and checks and balances, all to protect ourselves from those in government who may succumb to the temptations of wrongdoing. 
Recognition of this extraordinary proposition also breeds a deep and abiding appreciation of the rare civilization, which is its consequence. Second, the study of moral philosophy teaches us about ethical behavior. We at IWP teach our students how to use power. And power, like liberty, can be abused. So armed with knowledge of applied ethics, our students are more likely to use power prudently and responsibly. Finally, the study of moral philosophy reinforces character development by enhancing consciousness of the need to cultivate personal and civic virtue. We at IWP care about what kind of people you graduates turn out to be. Will you be honorable? Will you be honest, trustworthy, loyal, and reliable? Will you have the courage to see the truth, to tell the truth to power, and to stand on principle? Will you eschew hubris? And as Captain Glass invoked today, embody genuine humility, a virtue critical to great leadership? Will you use power with prudence and sound moral reasoning? Will you put the mission first, or will you put your personal career interests first and sell your souls for temporary gain? During World War II, Winston Churchill issued a challenge to the British people. Referring to the Nazis, he asked his people, what kind of people do they think we are? In one rhetorical flourish, he inspired some to muster ever greater strength while shaming others who weren't carrying their weight. What kind of people we as Americans are will depend heavily on what kind of leaders we produce. Will we send signals of strength to the world and bolster the credibility of our deterrent power Signals of strength that derive from moral strength. You know, as Solzhenitsyn said, security does not come from nuclear umbrellas. It comes from stout hearts and steadfast men. <coughs> or will we, by our moral corruption, self-indulgence, and flaccidity, send even more signals of weakness, provocative weakness, as we call it at IWP, to the aggressors of this world? So much of this depends upon you. America needs moral leadership, and it is our hope that you graduates, graduates of a school that actually cares about this, fill this enormous need. Let me congratulate you for your search for truth, your search for professional skill, for your passion to serve a cause higher than yourself, and for your successful completion of our regular, rigorous curriculum. God bless you all, and God bless America.